Welcome back. We are pleased to have our next guest join us this morning. He's a congressman. His name is Ro Khanna. He represents the 17th Congressional District located in the heart of Silicon Valley and is serving his third term. He sits on the House Committees on Agriculture, Armed Services, and Oversight and Reform, where he chairs the Environmental Subcommittee. Additionally, Representative Khanna is the Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, serves as an Assistant Whip for the Democratic Caucus, and is the Democratic Vice Chair of the House Caucus on India and Indian Americans. Congressman Khanna, good morning and welcome to WVON. How are you today? Great. Thank you for having me on. It's a real honor to be on. I'd imagine you're a little tired after being up cheering for the Golden State Warriors last night. <laughs> well, we came back. That was a uh, needed win. I We blew the lead in the first uh, game in the fourth quarter, so it was great to, to see us back and hoping we win the uh, third one in Boston. Well, that was a wonderful article about the Warriors and them being America's team, which we'll cover at some other point. But glad to have you here. Before we get to some other things, talk to us about where you stand and where you think Congress stands and is going on the issues of gun control and gun safety. You know, it's a good transition, actually, from the Warriors, because uh, as your listeners probably know, Steve Kerr has been one of the most vocal advocates for just sensible gun reform. His father was shot uh, and killed, and it's very personal to Steve Kerr. And I remember I did a town hall with Steve in uh, after Parkland, and we said something needs to happen. It's outrageous. Nothing has happened. You know, I mean, the truth is uh, this is my sixth year in Congress. In our six years, there have been many mass shootings, and nothing substantial has happened. Now, what I don't understand on the Republicans, I mean, look, I'm for banning assault weapons. I'm for a universal background check. The president, our leadership, is saying to the Republicans, at least raise the age from 18 to 21. I mean, give me a break. You have these assault weapons in the hands of 18-year-olds. Are you not at least for that? And we're having trouble right now even getting Republicans uh, to do something as basic as that. So we're going to keep fighting, and I'm this is not about messaging. We've got to get something done. But the obstinacy on the Republican side has been shocking. Why is it that we can't come together on something? I understand. Um, I understand the difference in political parties, but it would it seemed to have always been the case that somewhere along the way, common sense things made common sense to the victors go the spoils and we're able to get things done. Is there what is communication like between the Democrats and the Republicans, recognizing that for whatever reason this 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 strong polarization exists? Is there any way that we can get some movement on any of these things? Well, you know, I have conversations with Republican colleagues all the time, and on some issues like build semiconductor manufacturing chips in the United States, there's common ground. You would think on protecting our kids on making sure young people aren't getting shot to death with military-style weapons. There could be consensus in this country. But the reality is, uh, the brute reality of politics, that for many Republicans, supporting any kind of legislation to make uh, our our places and schools safer uh, is going to cost them their primary election. And that's the politics of it. So there are some courageous voices, people like Brian Fitzpatrick uh, in uh, Pennsylvania, Adam Kinsinger in Illinois, uh, but we need more of them. And, uh, you know, we're trying, we're 
We're hoping we can get some agreement, but red flag laws saying if you've actually threatened to kill someone, uh, you shouldn't have access to a gun, that you can go to court to temporarily take someone's gun away. I mean, these are such common sense things, and it's just a fear of losing for Republicans in their own primary. Congressman, on an individual basis, though, when you speak with them, do they personally feel the way in which they vote publicly? No. I mean, I think there are a lot of people. I mean, there are some folks who are total ideological absolutists who uh, don't want any uh, infringement on on the Second Amendment. I mean, I would say that that there are a a number of Republicans who you're never going to convince. There are other Republicans who say, Okay, okay. I'm. I get that we have to do something, uh, and they try. They basically, you know, don't comment much. They'd be fine with something, but they're not going to fuck their party leadership on it. And you know, a lot of times, what happens is they think, let's just ride this out, and after a few weeks, the country moves on to talking about something else, and and then nothing gets done. Now, I hope this time is is different. And one of the things that's different on the Democratic side is we're really not trying to, to embarrass the Republicans or score political points. I mean, we're going to vote for the assault weapons ban. We're going to vote for limiting magazines to 10 rounds. Who needs more than 10 rounds uh, in a single uh, clip? But uh, we're saying give us something. It will take even a few yards. We want to make sure there's some progress. Can we at least say that 18-year-olds shouldn't have military-style assault weapons. And the negotiation is going on. I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat hopeful we can at least get something, but I've seen this story play out too many times before where nothing gets done. Well, if there's something that the citizens can do to help those on the other side, you've been, you went to school here, so you know what uh, Chicago and Illinois is like, as we were certainly Chicago uh, from a democratic standpoint, but if there's some other way in which there can be recommended that the citizens should react, please let us know because we've got to do something different, not only for the mass shootings, but also for the shootings that happen here, for just the the, the dominance of guns that are in our society. I want to ask you a bit, uh, just shifting gears some, about the January 6th committee. What are your thoughts on how that's going to come out? I know that there are prime time hearings happening this week, but the Republicans stand in the same way on that as they do on gun safety. The Republicans are more entrenched on that than gun safety. At least with gun safety, uh, you get people saying, yeah, we've got to do something. It's gotten out of hand. On January 6th, there's a total defensive posture. I mean, what folks have to realize is when I got elected in 2016, it was the year Donald Trump got elected president, and there were still Republicans while he was president who would kind of snicker at things he'd do or say, oh, that's crazy. The Rep- Donald Trump today is stronger in the Republican Party, at least in the House, than he was when uh, he was president in 2016. It's total fealty to him, and they are unwilling to, to criticize him in any in any way. I mean, uh, it's just fear. They, they know he's going to uh, support a primary challenger. I, I think what the January 6th hearings are going to do, I mean, everyone knows the evidence, but I think one of the things it's going to highlight is this was not just a group of citizens uh, rioting and having an insurrection on the Capitol. This was orchestrated at the highest levels of the White House with a plan to overturn 
the legitimate election of the United States. And so far, we've seen accountability for people who were swept up in a mob and uh, created damage on the Capitol. But we haven't seen the accountability for the masterminds who are trying to overturn a legitimate United States election. And that's, I think, the story we're going to hear in these hearings. I pray that that is true because we're going after the body, but we got to go after the head because the head is still directing so many things that impacts all of us each day. We're talking to Congressman Ro Khanna. He represents California's 7th Congressional District. We'll continue this conversation right after this break. Welcome back. We're talking to, with Congressman Ro Khanna. He's the congressman in the 17th Congressional District in California. Congressman, you have been pretty outspoken about student debt. Share with our listeners your thoughts on that. Rufus, I took out about $100,000 of loans to finish my education in law school. I grew up in a middle-class family, and I paid them back because I've been fortunate. But that doesn't mean that just because I had some fortunate break that we uh, don't uh, forgive student loans for so many Americans who are being crushed by these. I mean, it's crazy. There's no other country in the world that has young people graduate with twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 of debt. One of the things that I think is uh, so off base is when people say, oh, this is an elite issue. Let me tell you, I've talked to a lot of working uh, class families, working families who have kids who are going to college or vocational education, and they want a lot of those loans forgiven. And the statistics show that it's the bottom 40 percent of wealth uh, in terms of families that would be helped uh, with the loan forgiveness. And by the way, it happens to be largely black and brown families that would be helped. It would go significantly to the racial wealth gap. So we need to do this and we have to be bold in doing it. So when you speak, when you speak, you and you personally or you broadly speak to the president, is this something that falls within his bailiwick or is this something that Congress can do? Look, the cleanest would be for Congress to do it, but we can't get the votes. I mean, we can't get uh, the votes in the Senate uh, for almost anything. And so the president has the authority to do this. And what I have said uh, to the president's chief of staff and to the president's key economic advisors on this issue is have him do it. And uh, let's see. I don't think that the Republicans are actually going to uh, try to litigate this all the way to the Supreme Court saying, no, we want to uh, actually have young people across America pay their loans. It would be a horrible political position. So I think if the president does this, uh, then we would win, because I don't think legally uh, the the challenges would, would work. Uh, and my understanding is that the president has concluded that he wants to do something, meaning he understands that he has the legal authority, and now it's just a question of how much. All of the, there's a debate in the White House. Some of his advisors are saying, don't do this because this is not going to help the working class and there's going to be resentment. Give me a break. I mean, it's actually the working class, uh, the middle class that's struggling that gets helped the most. It's not uh, kids from rich families that are taking out these loans. And to your point, there are a lot of black women who are struggling mightily under the weight of student loans. When the president ran, he talked about $50,000 in forgiveness. What is, in fact, holding him back? I think what we discussed, I think people see this as, uh, well, only 60% of Americans don't go to college and you're 
You're only helping the people who are already going to succeed, who are going to become engineers, doctors, lawyers. The problem with that is, first of all, the loans would be forgiven even for vocational education. Second, it used to be in this country that we encouraged the American dream, that we wanted people to go get more education uh, than their parents if if that's what they wanted. Uh, And we should uh, have that be supported. And and third, you can't narrow the wealth gap if you have uh, some people graduating with $40,000, $50,000 of debt, even if they do become uh, professionals, even if they do become doctors, they never can buy a house until their 40s and 50s. And why is that fair? Why are we having so many people in this country start out $40,000, $50,000 in the hole? One final point on this. Public college used to be free in this country, basically, from 1862, the land-grant universities, the HBCUs were included in 1890, up to 1960s. And in 1960s, you had state budget cuts, and that's really when the cost of college went up. So we have a tradition in this country of not making people go into debt for higher education. And that's a tradition we need to go back to. Congressman, you were here in Chicago recently, just shifting a bit, uh, talk dealing with the um, the United Steel Workers and the Black Collaborative there. Talk about your work in the labor movement. Yeah, I was uh, there in, in, in Chicago to meet uh, with some of the United Steel Workers, and we had a roundtable with uh, about eight uh, eight of uh, the, the leaders and, and and workers and the steel workers. I was struck by one comment, Jawan Smith. He's about forty five years old, uh, African American. And he said to me, Ro, when I was growing up in the 1980s, young uh, black men and women had more economic opportunity than they do today. Uh, there used to be U.S. Steel Southworks. There was more steel in Gary, Indiana. Folks could get $30 jobs with health care, with benefits. And now, uh, you know, a lot of folks are getting $15, $17 jobs. They're working at warehouses. They're working at, uh, at fast food and care work. And then he said to me, look, uh, why aren't you guys doing anything? Look at Elon Musk. He's building gigafactories. I said to him, you realize Elon is anti, anti-union and is actually getting sued uh, by black workers in California. He said, yeah, but at least he knows what he's doing. And, and I got this sense that why are we not producing more in America? Why aren't we building the next generation of high-paying jobs? But I don't know, Rufus, what your perspective is, but I was very saddened when he was saying that the prospects were better in the 1980s than they are today. Yeah, that's uh, troubling because we always hope that each generation is going to have an opportunity to be better than the last, and that doesn't always seem to be the case. You mentioned Elon Musk, who, uh, <laughs> speaking of being anti-union, Elon Musk called everybody back to work and said, if you don't come back, I assume that means you've quit. Um, so a lot, a lot to be said as it relates to him and it relates there. Let me ask you one more question before we run out of time, um, Representative. You are, you have a B.A. in economics, a Phi Beta Kappa, with a B.A. in economics from the University of Chicago, and you have a law degree from Yale University. Uh, you're a congressman in Silicon Valley. You're right there in the midst of a lot of going on, a lot of wealth, a lot of technology, a lot of things. What does your future look like? Where, do, where will we see you uh, what will we see you next, and what are the things that we'll see you fighting for next? Well, my biggest passion, as you mentioned, my district, it's uh, $11 trillion of market cap, Apple, Google, Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn. 
And I, my biggest passion has been how do we get the wealth generation of the modern economy more decentralized? How do we get it more distributed? We've done things with uh, Galesburg uh, Community College and Google setting up programs for young folks to get jobs in technology. We've done it in Claflin, uh, which is an HBCU, and we've done things in, in, in West Virginia and in, in Kentucky. I, I, my passion is how do we get, make our economy a high-wage, high-production economy and how do we get these economic opportunities, not just in my district, but in large parts of the country that have been left out. And the biggest thing I say on the racial wealth gap is I say you can't overcome the racial wealth gap if you don't overcome the racial wealth generation gap. And Silicon Valley has been too explicit, going back to the days Reverend Jackson used to come out there for the Rainbow Coalition. Uh, But we can't keep ignoring that with the technology revolution. And my passion is how do we get more people, whether they're in rural America, whether they're in the middle of the country, whether they're in black or brown communities, participating in the wealth generation of the modern economy. Well, right there in California will probably be um, a huge boon to get some of those companies that are currently in Silicon Valley to move some of their operations to Oakland or places where we could really benefit broadly from what their knowledge and what their, um, what their wealth and what their, their economics are in some places that don't have the same. Exactly. You're absolutely right. Oakland is a wonderful city, vibrant city, but it still hasn't been given a lot of these opportunities. And Barbara Lee, who represents that place, has been talking about equity and tech as long as Reverend Jackson has been talking about equity and tech. But it's been a lot of talk over the last 20 years and in terms of they've had good faith efforts, but we haven't been dramatic enough. In, in, in solving this. And there's no reason we can. You know, I mean, the Google program at Claflin, they're paying 5000 bucks to kids, 18-month course, 10 hours is supplemental to their other curriculum, and they all get $70,000 jobs at the end of it. There are going to be $25 million of these digital jobs. And I don't understand why our country isn't more intentional about getting people those opportunities, getting folks the opportunities of, of venture capital, uh, I think our message has to be to uh, to, to, to communities that have been uh, systematically either face discrimination or disadvantage that it's about obviously people need the right to vote. Obviously, you need to be able to go out on the streets and not be shot at by a cop. Obviously, we shouldn't have assault weapons. But we have to have a bigger message, which is what are we going to do to help people get jobs, to start businesses, to grow wealth? Why should it be that they don't have the same opportunities that kids in my district are? And so... A lot of my focus has been on that economic work of how we're going to empower people to build wealth and create opportunity. Congressman, keep up the keep up the work because we certainly need it. We need those thoughts. We need those ideas and we need that movement. Thank you so much for joining us on WVON this morning to share your perspectives as well. Thank you, Rufus. Thank you for all you do. It was a real honor. Indeed. Be well. Uh, we'll take this break for, for WVON News. When we come back, we'll talk with Dr. 